Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister responds to government documents that seem to suggest current measures around the coronavirus could continue until at least July. I've said from the very beginning that there are a wide range of scenarios that we have been looking for, that we are planning for, that we are uh, you know, trying to uh, work towards uh, as a government, as a country. Uh, we know that we are going to be in place for a number of more weeks, perhaps more months. Parliament is set to be recalled once again to consider a multi-billion dollar expansion to the coronavirus financial aid package. And the Prime Minister has judged, and I 100% agree with him, that the magnitude of the measures that we know are necessary means that it would be a good idea to bring Parliament back to work on them. And the health minister admits Canada likely didn't stockpile enough protective equipment for a health crisis. No, we likely did not have enough. I think federal governments for decades have been underfunding things like public health preparedness. And uh, I would say that obviously governments all across the world are in the same exact situation. It's Thursday, April the 2nd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. There was much buzz over the last 24 hours about a report in the National Post that cited a government document that uh, measures that are in place to contain the outbreak of the coronavirus could be in place until at least July, that that might even be the best-case scenario. Yesterday, the government declined to share its own models uh, that it's looking at with the public. Uh, do you think the public has a right to know on this? And what are you hearing in terms of what might be the timetable for this? Yeah, I think the government, do, the public does have a right to know. I mean, other countries are telling their voters and citizens what uh, what to expect, even even the U.S. You know, I mean, they've come out with, with a range of um, what the death toll might even be. You know, I think in New Zealand, they've been very specific. This is suggesting that 20% of the senior Maori population might be lost under this pandemic. You know, I mean, those are pretty scary numbers, and yet it doesn't seem mass panic has set in. I think people are aware that these are, you know, best, best guess. The, the, the thing is, it's extremely volatile. Um, but I think also it might it might help behaviour if you suggest that you know at the top end of the range of people uh, do not social distance. Here's what the scenario could be, and here's but here's what it could be if the, if they do behave well. Then I think right. that might help far more than draconian policing actions, such as we're starting to see in Ottawa, where you know movement is being curtailed. You can't cross from from uh, from Ottawa into Gatineau anymore. Um, you know, I think that that uh, the public generally is on side with this and could be relied upon to behave better if they were given the full picture. Right. Something along the lines of if everybody cooperates and follows the guidelines, we could be out of this in X amount of time. But if you don't, it's going to take Y amount of time. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think that um, Justin Trudeau seems to find it very hard to answer that a straight question with a straight answer. And the straight question was, you know, internal documents are showing that the government is working on the assumption that it is going to be July before we start relaxing some of these measures. And yet he could not confirm that or, or uh, 
embroider it or, or give any kind of additional information. There are a wide range of projections depending on how Canadians are behaving, he said. And I think that's not good enough. I think that people deserve, deserve better than that. Let's talk about the economic measures that have been put in place. We learned more details about those yesterday, and uh, business groups have been reacting to that. Um, initially, the 75% wage subsidy looked like uh, a large amount of support for small businesses in particular. Uh, but now that the criteria have been introduced, uh, there are a lot of questions about whether uh, enough companies will make the 30% drop in revenue threshold that's required to qualify and whether this is all too cumbersome and whether it will take too long for companies to actually receive the money from the government. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think business groups are suggesting that that uh, it's not clear how to calculate that 30 percent i mean when does the when's the starting date um, there are obviously businesses that have surges in sales and therefore you know you might get a, a very good month in february and then your your sales are, are next to nothing in in, uh, in march and it, it produces a uh, you know you might not get a clear picture over just a couple of months the, the biggest concern though i think is that it's going to take six weeks before this thing kicks in by which time many of these people will be Many of the workers will be laid off and, and, and claiming EI. So I think it's not ideal. On the other hand, um, you know, the this, this system is just trying to respond to a, an, an unprecedented uh, situation. It was never designed, you know, the EI system, for example, was never designed to, to try to process two million claims in two weeks, which is what we've seen in the last uh, in, the, in the last two weeks of March. So I think people are doing the best they can. I think the government has taken, has been almost almost one step behind in getting reaching the right decision. It's generally reached the right decision, but if you remember, we started off in, not so long ago with a one million one billion dollar package of aid for the provinces, for workers, for everybody. That was going to be it. You know, eventually they got to ten percent wage subsidy. Then they realised, well, that's not going to be enough, so they got to seventy five percent. And, you know, at this time, we're still working out the details. And it, it would seem to me that on the first, if they'd recognized the emergency a little bit earlier, we could have sorted this out already and the six weeks would have been, period would have been reduced. I think that's true also of, of equipment and uh, protective equipment and, and ventilators. I mean, it became clear extremely early on in this, as soon as it became clear that Canada was going to be struck by this, that we didn't have enough ventilators. And yet it's only in the last few days that Justin Trudeau has been announcing uh, contracts or, or, or um, putative contracts. I mean, we don't even, I don't think, have the exact numbers yet um, to get these things built. So, you know, I think it's it's easy to be critical, I suppose, because this, the, the scale of this thing is unprecedented. But I do think that the, the, the government has been more cautious than it needed to be. And I still believe, which are conversations we've had for the last few weeks, that the easiest way to have done this was just get money out the door, give everybody a check, and then claim it back next year through the tax system. That right. could have been done much earlier. Yeah, and what are you hearing in terms of the potential for economic recovery or how that will happen? Uh, because there are concerns that a lot of businesses will fail during this time and that it will take a long time to restart the economy, even though the fundamentals that were in place before this public health crisis uh, should be there some at some point afterwards. It's only the damage from the public health crisis that will 
that will be a, that will be harmful to the economy. It still may take some time. Yeah, I was talking to some people uh, in, in the sort of upper echelons of government. People are sitting in the room when these decisions are being made. You know, I was asking, what's keeping you awake at night? And it wasn't so much the health crisis. The health system should be able to weather the storm that's coming. You know, clearly it's good. there are going to be many, many deaths. It is going to be extremely messy and uncomfortable and awful. But I don't think we're going to be in the same situation Italy was in, for example, where you know, the death rate was 10% of those who were affected and, and the health system was completely overwhelmed. That's not what's keeping them awake at night. What is keeping them awake is how do we restart the economy once we get to July or later into the fall? Many of these businesses will not survive. Many small businesses just won't, won't reopen. You know, there are considerations about deglobalization. Is there going to be a movement towards deglobalization where the supply chains have proven fragile and, and may never be re- recreated? Does there have to be a role for government in some kind of industrial policy where it, where it creates a more self-sustaining policy when it comes to food supply, when it comes to protective equipment, in this case, ventilators, whatever. Uh, these are questions that they're now starting to turn their minds to, and I think that uh, it's not readily apparent what kind of world we're going to be reimagining into. And what about the fact that the government has acknowledged that uh, that governments generally have not been prepared for this, despite all the warnings about a potential pandemic? Uh, we didn't stockpile enough emergency equipment and and uh, and other necessities for a time like this. Well, I mean, I think that's apparent now. It, it, it may have been apparent to some people in the system during the uh, ahead of this crisis. I mean, governments are never good at doing things that they don't immediately need to do. They're not good at doing things that don't have an immediate electoral payback. The problem, obviously, is that we could be prepared for another outbreak of COVID by stocking up, you know, after the initial burst of the disease, we could stock up on protective gear and build more ventilators. And then the next crisis that comes along is completely different or the things we stockpiled aren't appropriate. I mean, it's 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 typical of uh, generals to fight the last war over, and I think it's the same as true of governments. Yeah. All right, John, great to have your insights on all of this today. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Be well. That's John Iveson of the National Post. We know that all hospitals are in need of personal protective equipment, and the provinces and territories are working with the federal government to develop an allocation process that really gets at making sure those uh, products are going to the areas in the country that are experiencing the surges right now. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues we're sending health workers into battle without proper weapons. The Star writes... There will be time enough, once the pandemic is behind us, to count up the cost and figure out how things could have been handled better. For now, fighting the battle must be the highest priority. But there's already one area where the mistakes are so glaringly obvious that we don't need the benefit of hindsight to point them out. The shameful shortage of medical masks, face shields, gowns, and other personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers. At cbc.ca, Dr. Andrew L. Smith and Dr. Neil DeLaPlante argue the pressures of COVID-19 could be catastrophic for Canada's mental health system. They write, 
While necessary and important, the public health measures currently mandated by the government may lead many of us to feelings of isolation and powerlessness, both of which are known to be associated with depression, anxiety, and even suicide. The emotional effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on our society could be catastrophic for a mental health system which is already chronically under-resourced, and it is the vulnerable who will suffer most if the system does not hold. In McLean's, David Mosscrop asks if democracy can survive the coronavirus. Mosscrop writes, Our practices and institutions are stable and functional until they're not. Extraordinary times threaten that which we take for granted. The risk to democracy from COVID-19 is most obvious in countries where self-government was already under threat or in retreat. But as we continue to consider the extent and effects of the pandemic, no democratic state ought to take anything for granted. Instead, each state ought to look at how they can double down on democracy. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Parliamentary Budget Officer will release a report today on the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's order that the federal government pay compensation to tens of thousands of Indigenous children. CPAC's Martin Stringer takes a closer look. Mark, at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, the Parliamentary Budget Officer will post his report estimating the cost to the federal government of living up to an order issued by the Human Rights Tribunal that it compensate up to 44,000 former children who were removed from their Indigenous families and put into the child welfare system. Back in 2016, the Tribunal ruled that Ottawa had acted in a discriminatory way when it removed those children from their families. After more than five compliance orders and four years of waiting, the tribunal went one step further and ordered Ottawa to compensate each of those children up to $40,000 in damages. After last fall's election, the Trudeau government, though, appealed the case before the federal court, arguing, among other things, that the cost was prohibitive and could be as high as 6 to $8 billion. The federal court refused to throw out the tribunal's order, and a few weeks later, a majority of MPs in the new minority parliament uh, voted uh, to ask the government to simply get on with paying the compensation. Now NDP MP Charlie Angus has asked the parliamentary budget officer to get to the bottom of uh, uh, the federal government's claim that the cost is prohibitive. Yves Giroux will produce his report today with his estimate of how much it will cost for Ottawa to, as many people see it, do the right thing. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will host a call with provincial and territorial premiers before his daily news conference on the coronavirus situation. And Foreign Affairs Minister François-Philippe Champagne will take part via video conference in the NATO Foreign Ministers' Meeting. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, April the 2nd. Tune into CPAC throughout the day today and at cpac.ca for coverage of the coronavirus crisis and primetime politics tonight. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.